viviamo, li viviamo negli eti carici che la bellezza infiò. This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. We're halfway into the year, and opera has already worked its way into three gigantic athletic events. For those keeping score, there was Renee Fleming's pop-tinged version of the national anthem at the Super Bowl, Anna Netrebko's lush take on the Olympic anthem during the opening ceremonies in Sochi, and on July 11th, two days before the World Cup finals in Brazil, Longtime soccer fan Placido Domingo is giving a concert in Rio de Janeiro. So who gets the medal for best operatic performance in stadium events? And how did it happen that opera seems to be taking over sports spectaculars? Joining us are two experts, Anne Majette, the classical music critic of The Washington Post, and Joseph Horowitz, a veteran concert programmer and author of 10 books, including Classical Music in America, A History of Its Rise and Fall. And why is an opera singer apparently this year's must-have accessory for sporting event producers? Well, this is nothing new, and I would say that opera and sports are a natural pairing. I've always said that being an opera fan is very much like being a sports fan. Um, I think that opera fans are responding to very much the same things. Um, you're looking for the highs and lows. You're rooting for your favorites. You're waiting to see if they're going to trip up. There's the real element of fandom, in, as everybody who loves opera knows. So it's a natural match, and I don't think it's a particularly new match either. Of course, the Star-Spangled Banner is always sung at the beginning of ball games, and uh, singers like Robert Merrill were associated with the New York Yankees for years and years. And Eileen Farrell used to, I think, go to ball games and lose her voice rooting for the home team. Uh, and after all, the three tenors were launched as a concert in the World Cup in 1990. It was supposed to be a kind of one-off amusing thing that these three tenors did for a one-off price, which they bitterly regretted once the three tenors became a global phenomenon. We'll get to the tenors in just a moment. Joe, you probably have a very long view of this. Is it good PR for opera to get itself out in front of a mass audience, like a sports audience? I'll share with you my favorite experience of the national anthem. It was 2004 at a Seattle Mariners game, and it was sung by Kevin Langan, a bass with the Seattle Opera, who had the tiny part of Titorel in Parsifal. And I was in Seattle to see Parsifal, but I wanted to go to a Mariners game, so I contacted Spate Jenkins, who, is the general, who was the general manager of Seattle Opera. And, of course, he went to Mariners games. He had tickets. He helped me get tickets. I didn't know I'd be hearing Kevin Langan. And Langan was not presented in any way as a superstar, I mean, he was playing a tiny role in Parsifal. That was the most stirring rendition I've ever heard of the Star-Spangled Banner. It was just stentorian, and I'm sure I wasn't the only person who reacted that way. But the other thing that was memorable about that, and I hope this doesn't sound too cerebral, is that subliminally it conveyed a message about these two institutions, Seattle Opera and the Seattle Mariners, that it was a kind of a parody that they were, I mean, P-A-R-I-T-Y, <laughs> that they were these civic institutions, cultural institutions, in which all Seattle took pride. The Mariners were Seattle's baseball team. The opera was Seattle's opera. And people who went to the opera went to the baseball games, and people who went to the baseball games went to the opera. Do you think New York should be engaged in more of that? Do you think this could help the Mets positioning here in the city if, if they would send more of their singers out? New York is not Seattle. Fair enough. 
But I think there are plenty of instances of hometown orchestras and opera companies aligning themselves with sporting events. I mean, look at the World Series. Usually, usually, often, the orchestras of the two different competing towns will now do YouTube videos and do playoffs. I think the Chicago Symphony and Muti did something recently. There's a lot of a sense of the hometown team that local orchestras are eager to cultivate. Um, and again, it's not antithetical at all to the experience of music going. I think that musical institutions would do well to market themselves, if you will, more in the manner of sporting events, that it's something you want to go to again and again. Part of the problem with how music is presented to us is this, this idea of some great transcendental, one-off, magnificent experience, and you don't need a whole lot of that in a year. But if you think about like a sporting event, you, if you're a big baseball fan, you want to go as much as possible. And I think and if you're a big opera piece, fan, you want to go as much as possible. Exactly, exactly. But I think that that is too seldom presented to people who are becoming introduced to the field, and that that idea of something great and transcendental is more often hammered home. And that's not the way to get people to want to go more. And is it good for singers to get out in front of a stadium audience? It's good for singers to get exposure any way they can. It's good for singers to get on TV. You know, there's no reason to be um, picky about one's audience. And that has historically not at all been a part of opera. I mean, if you look back at the, you know, Caruso would have, I'm not sure Caruso ever sang the national anthem, but he certainly did many things like that. He sang over there for the World War I soldiers. So absolutely. And I mean, look at how Renee Fleming got everybody buzzing about the Super Bowl. The fact that an opera singer was appearing and singing at the Super Bowl, that was a really big deal. That's great. That but gets people pretty, talking. It was a pretty awful rendition, wasn't it? Yes, it I was. I did a little homework <laughs> for the, this morning's interview. I went this morning on YouTube just because I didn't see the Super Bowl. And I was kind of surprised that she sang with such exaggerated sincerity I thought the whole thing was pretentious and over the top and not all that impressive vocally either. Who's got stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight over Well, you know, I wrote about it, sort of live blogged it right after it happened. And I was sort of of two minds because in a way she pulled it off. But in another way, I do agree with what you're saying that I thought it wasn't, it certainly wasn't her best self, although she does have a way of lapsing into what you call false sincerity um, or extreme sincerity when she's doing a lot of popular music anyway. But what was interesting was the reaction and the violence of the reaction between people who were outside the opera world and were like, who is this woman singing this horrible way? And people who were sort of more on the side of the opera world, that this is magnificent, this is wonderful, how can you be critical? And um, of course, that's always a part of the reaction to a critic writing. But um, it was particularly strong in this case, people who felt that she had done something great for classical music by doing this and that, uh, and that to say otherwise was really to rain on the classical music parade. How did Renee Fleming's performance at the Super Bowl compare to Anna Trebko's performance at the Olympics, as long as we're talking sopranos in sporting events? Well, I live blogged that too, since it was just a couple of days later. Renee's appearance was certainly more of a big deal in that Natrebko's appearance was part of a general big deal. You had Gergiev conducting, you had all kinds of stuff going on. And I thought Natrebko was a little more subdued, for better or worse. I mean, neither of them was an example of those singers at their vintage best, um, as one would probably not expect it to be. 
but uh, they were both fine for what they were, but neither struck a great blow for classical music, as the three tenors undeniably did. I mean, that three tenors concert in 1990, whatever you think of the three tenors phenomenon, it had a lot of spark and oomph, and and it was fun and funny and kind of irreverent and a little trashy, and uh, that's why the three tenors took off the way they did. Did the three tenors create new opera fans, do you think? I don't believe so. Joe may disagree, but I think the whole argument that, oh, the three tenors get people wanting to go to the opera has been basically proven wrong. What the three tenors did was create a new appetite for what's become known now as classical crossover. And there's a whole genre of singer now doing things like the three tenors, um, some of them actual opera singers. Joe, how do you come down on the three tenors? I just took a short-lived interest in this when I was writing my book on the history of classical music in America, and I went to Pavarotti at Madison Square Garden. It was my, you know, field work. It's something I would not normally <laughs> do. And uh, it was startling. I found him very uncomfortable, self-conscious. He was singing with music. He didn't seem to be having a good time. And I thought the response was dutiful rather than really spontaneous none of which I particularly anticipated. But when I saw this clip of Renee Fleming singing the national anthem this morning at the Super Bowl, I was reminded of Pavarotti at Madison Square Garden. I thought they both seemed a little uncomfortable. I thought they both seemed self-conscious. I would agree with you 100%, but I would further add that I think you're putting your finger on a problem with opera today, not a problem with opera singers at classical events today, that I get that dutiful sense a lot from opera singers in the opera house these days, and that opera has become something kind of earnest that is done with a furrowed brow. And part of what made the three tenors so much fun is that it wasn't dutiful. Certainly the first concert, I I had to see a number of these clip when I was writing the book with Luciano Pavarotti's former manager, Herbert Breslin, about his years with Pavarotti. And that first Three Tenors concert is still a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, it took me a while to come around to it because I was—I just thought the whole idea was beneath my concept of operatic art. But um, it has precisely that fun that those great 1950s singers have, even when they're singing Verdi, you know, that, that excitement to it. And that sense of fun is missing from a lot of the arena acts you see today. Humor punctures mid-cult. <laughs> The three tenors certainly gave the aria Nessun Dorma a huge boost among soccer fans. Well, what's happened is that Nessun Dorma has become the anthem for the male crossover singer seeking to be serious, the Paul Potts, you know, any America's Got Talent show. The female equivalent is O Mio Babino Caro, which doesn't appear at sporting events so much because it's not really appropriate. But I mean, Nessun Dorma is not thematically so appropriate either. It just sounds nice and noble and exciting. But um, I believe that those two arias have just kind of become the male and female signifier of operatic moxie for many people who don't know much about opera. Appearances like this in the past were usually driven by record labels. Do record labels still have a big stake in this or who stands to cash in? I would just point out that record companies no longer are able to promote artists, nor do they have the muscle that they once had. And Therefore, it it rests much more, I think, on publicists and agents to figure out these 
jungles. I mean, opera on television is another example where, you know, singers used to appear all the time on late night talk shows and Johnny Carson and what have you. And it's a very rare thing for a singer to get on Letterman, although Renee Fleming did sing the top 10 last fall, I guess, and got lots and lots of attention for that. I think that did a lot for opera. I think people found that really funny. She sang the top 10 and she sang all of it to the tunes of famous arias. And there were actually things online of which arias were those that she sang. And there was quite a bit of interest. Joe, do you think this these appearances in stadiums fill a void that was left half a century ago when classical musicians were at that point all over television, Toscanini and people like that? It was such a different time. There was a time when NBC and CBS had their own orchestras. NBC had an opera company very different from what we associate with great performances in PBS. It did opera in English in adventurous stagings. It commissioned operas. So if you're looking back as far as the 40s and the 50s, it's a different world and in many ways a much more inspiring world for culture. How so? CBS had a studio orchestra, right? Two of the conductors were Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Wallenstein. Herrmann was a champion of Ives. He had Bartok in the studio. He was himself a very, very remarkable composer. And he was attentive to contemporary music, the contemporary moment. If you juxtapose that with what became great performances on public television, great performances does not look very impressive. Do you think there is an economic angle to all of these appearances by opera singers? Do they come cheaper than, say, somebody like Beyonce? I think that Renee Fleming represents a rare case these days. I mean, as Joe said, the culture has changed so radically. Classical music has a kind of niche, odd outsider status now that it didn't have then. There's no longer a sense of its centrality. And um, I remember a couple of years ago talking to a presenter who said that there were only five artists today who could sell out a house reliably in America, and that there used to be dozens of them. Renee Fleming is one of the few singers with the recognition and the clout uh, to be able to do the national anthem. If you name me another opera singer that could sing the Super Bowl national anthem today, Anna the Trepko wouldn't be appropriate because you want American. Um, I think you'd have a hard time finding one. There may be, you know, better singers. There may be greater singers. I'm not sure you'd find one who has the, the clout and the heft. Can I make a kind of oblique comment without naming too many names? I was talking with my friend Ben Pasternak a year or so ago, who's a wonderful pianist, about pianists. And we were reminiscing. And I'm in my 60s, and Ben is at least in his 50s. And Ben was saying, you know, there was a time when if you were a famous pianist, you were a good pianist. And we thought about uh, Michelangeli or Richter or Rubinstein or Rao or Serkin. And uh, we both agreed that when we were growing up, a pianist with a major career and a major reputation was a really good pianist, a really impressive pianist. You didn't have to like them all. I mean, I'm not a fan of Richter, but I can understand that he was a major pianist. And he said, and I did too, now anybody can be a famous pianist. (laughs) So if you could have your choice of any classical musician to perform the national anthem at fill-in-the-blank game of your choice, who would you choose? Living or dead? Your choice. 
Well, I would I would pick a classical musician I've always wanted to hear. I mean, of course, I would pick Enrico Caruso. <laughs> That's a good living choice. is a, living is a bigger challenge. <laughs> Joe, yeah, Caruso was really what Pavarotti hoped to be or claimed to be. He was equally comfortable in what would be the equivalent of a baseball stadium, and at the Metropolitan Opera House. That's a, a wonderful ideal to aspire towards. Thank you both for joining us. This has been Conducting Business. We've been speaking with Washington Post classical music critic Anne Majette and author Joseph Horowitz. Brian Weiss is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Download our podcasts on iTunes or at Stitcher.com. Thanks for listening.